Please turn with me to Romans chapter 9, verse 30. Parents, we have been studying the book of Romans. We began in September, and we are now this morning, we're going to enter into chapter 10. So as we get started, I'll back up a little bit and give you some, some background, kind of set the context for you. I thought I'd begin with a question, though. Uh, have you ever made an excuse for yourself? No? Dog ate my homework kind of thing, right? It's human nature. Something goes wrong in our lives, and we look for someone else to blame rather than taking responsibility. Uh, this last week, I went turkey hunting with three of our other pastors. And uh, I did not shoot a turkey. I shot at a turkey. But I missed, and I just want you to know it wasn't my fault. Um, you know, right as I was about to pull the trigger, the turkey moved. I know turkeys do that. And he, he moved, and I was behind really thick brush, and he moved right behind a tree. And he actually was really pretty far off, but he, he got spooked, and he started to move away. And the fact is, there really were not that many turkeys available because of the drought. They haven't been breeding much, and so we only saw a few turkeys. And really, it wasn't my fault. Um, you, you know, I, I thought it was funny. They, they say that turkeys are among the stupidest animals on the planet. However, <laughs> there were four of us hunters, 1,500 acres, two days of hunting, and we only brought, brought back two birds. And so I thought, hmm, perhaps there's a dumber animal on the planet. <laughs> it's just human nature. We make excuses for little things like missing a turkey, for big things. Failed business, failed relationship. We look to others. Romans 9 through 11 is actually about a big failure. It's about a failed relationship between God and his chosen people. Chapter 10 is about Jewish excuses for that failed relationship, blaming God rather than taking responsibility for themselves. Romans 9 through 11 is an answer to a problem that is raised in the minds of many based upon where chapter 8 ended. Chapter 8 ended with this marvelous promise, nothing will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will separate us. And yet for the Jew, as he looked around, if he was one of the few Jews in the church, he noticed, there are not many like me, it's mostly Gentiles, not Jews. Has God failed? These are his chosen people. Why are there so few that exist in the body of Christ? Or to put it another way, why are most Jews, in fact, separated from God and from his Messiah? I want you to read with me in Romans chapter 9, verse 30. Paul summarizes the problem like this. He says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. In other words, we've got more and more and more Gentiles coming in, and they weren't even chasing after God. And fewer and fewer and fewer Jews coming in, and they were pursuing a righteousness. Why is that? Has God failed? What Paul does in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is he argues that, no, in fact, God has been faithful. We cannot impugn the character of God. God has been righteous in the sense that he is always right in this relationship. And he breaks down his argument in three ways. In chapter 9, he says, no, in fact, God did not choose every Jew. God never promised to choose every Jew. So God has not broken his promises. That's the doctrine of election. God just chose a few. What we observed, though, last week also is that, in fact, Jesus did 
pay the penalty for the sin of all people, including all Jews. 1 John chapter 2, it says he himself, that is Jesus, is the propitiation or the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin for our sins, but not for ours only, also for those of the whole world. So God didn't choose every Jew, but the sin, the price of sin was paid for for every Jew and in fact for every Gentile. We also observe that God wants all people to come to salvation. Second Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God does not take any delight in the destruction of the wicked, the prophets tell us. And as Paul has driven home the point in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, all of humanity is running away from God. There's none righteous. There's not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Yet God in his mercy reached out and he chose some of those of all of humanity who were running away from him and he chose them for salvation and showed mercy to them. Why? So that he could extend mercy to more. That's why God chose. That's why God elected. But we're left with this question. If God chose some, then can we blame God? It's God's fault that the rest are not saved. Second part of Paul's argument is this. No, in fact, most Jews did not choose God. Paul says, no, Jews can't blame God for not choosing them because they chose against God. It's both and. Paul lays in front of us both the absolute sovereignty of God and his free will in choosing and mankind's responsibility to choose for God. And if man chooses against God, man's separated and man is responsible. And Paul doesn't reconcile the two for us, unfortunately. He leaves us with that theological quandary because his point in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is not to answer our theological question, but to demonstrate the righteousness of God. God is right. God is faithful. God does not break his promises. So the third part of his argument in chapter 11 that we'll see next week, or in two weeks actually, is this. God will in fact fulfill his promises. He's going to go back and he's going to talk about the specific promises God made to Israel and how after God has hardened Israel for a time to bring in the Gentiles, he will turn back to Israel and he will bring national repentance to Israel and will fulfill all of his promises to the nation. This morning what we want to do is we're going to go back through chapter 10 and we're going to break down the excuses that the Jews use, which really apply for all of humanity, for why they want to blame God for the broken relationship. And Paul's going to say, no, it's not God's fault. God is righteous. God is faithful. You are responsible. The first excuse is this. Our own righteousness is good enough. We don't need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I want you to read with me now in chapter 9, verse 31. Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed or put to shame. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about or not understanding God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Most Jews didn't think they needed Jesus. 
because they had their own righteousness. And I've discovered that um, in my conversations with people who don't know Jesus Christ, who don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, they have the basic, basically the same attitude. I, I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had with folks when I'll begin to talk to them about spiritual matters, eternal life. I'll ask the question, you think someday God is going to let you in? You're standing there at the pearly gates that we imagine. And God says, why should I let you in? Do you think he'll let you in? And what would you argue? What would you say? Conversation after conversation, people have come back and said, well, you know, I really think as I look at my good and my bad, my good on the whole outweighs my bad. And when I look at myself relative to the rest of humanity, really, I think I'm going to come out pretty good in front of God. And he's going to say, sure, you're in the top 50%. Come on in, right? I've had so many conversations. That is a basic way of thinking for many people. Well, for the Jews, they had a, a right in a sense to think that way. They were more righteous than most groups of people, right? They worshiped the one true God. They had the word of God and they believed the word of God and they studied the word of God and they memorized the word of God and they quoted the word of God and they attempted to live righteously. So what was their problem? It was pride. It was pride. Read with me again, chapter 10, verse 3. For not understanding God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. You know, when we were in in, uh, Israel uh, a few weeks ago, we lived under some of the Mosaic law. You enter into Israel and you're going to subject yourself to some of the law. Uh, There are dietary laws, kosher laws. I took this picture walking down a a little city street in the old city of Jerusalem. Uh, This is a kosher certificate. And if you want Jews to eat in your establishment, you have to have one of these. The kosher police come by and they check out your place. Are you keeping kosher dietary laws? And if you don't have this prominently displayed, and it's about like that big. I mean, it's, it's tough to miss. It's not a, like, like our little health certificates in, in the corner. It's huge. You don't have that. Jews won't eat here at your restaurant. I noticed that uh, some McDonald's are kosher and some are not. Uh, One of the kosher laws is you can't mix milk products and meat. Because there's a law, remember, you can't boil uh, a lamb in its mother's milk. And so they take that to mean you can't have milk and meat in the same kitchen. So I got online, I found out that this this, uh, McDonald's actually has been applying for kosher for years. And they just got their kosher status. So they changed their, their sign even. I don't know, you see the little squiggly lines, that's Hebrew. Right? See that up there? The stuff you can't read. That's Hebrew right there. Um, and notice the two are different. That one literally says kosher. The M says it all. It's McDonald's and kosher. That's not kosher. That just is transliterated McDonald's. Okay? <laughs> because they're not keeping kosher. So Jews aren't going to eat there. Uh, you're under dietary laws. Uh, you're also under Sabbath laws. Things you can't do on the Sabbath. You can't work on the Sabbath generally, you know that. But they break that down to mean a lot of different things. Women can't cook on the Sabbath. That's work, which you'd think, wow, what a blessing. You don't have to cook on the Sabbath. But they have to, pre- they have to prepare everything for the next day, the day ahead. Uh, you cannot drive on the Sabbath because a spark is created in a combustion engine and that creates a flame and that's work. So you have to walk on the Sabbath, but you can't walk too far. On the Sabbath, right? You can't complete anything on the Sabbath. That's work. 
So what that means is you can't make a cell phone call because that's, that's completing a circuit. You can't actually use electricity at all because anytime you flip a switch, you're completing a circuit. So you're in the dark on the Sabbath. You can't do any of these things on the Sabbath. Uh, you cannot actually push an elevator button on the Sabbath. There are special elevators. This is the Sabbath or Shabbat elevator. Stops on every floor. Okay? So you don't have to push the button. Now, a couple of our folks, we were trying to get out the door and get, you know, get going one morning. And unfortunately, a couple of our folks didn't understand this principle. And they got on the Sabbath elevator on the way up. Okay, so they stopped. Doors open. Doors close. Elevator goes up. Stops. Doors open. Doors close. I didn't ask how long they wrote it <laughs> until they got on the stairs and figured out, something's wrong here. Okay, that's the Sabbath elevator. You can't work. That's a form of righteousness. All right? But what does it produce? It doesn't change the heart. It creates pride. Okay? And that was the fundamental problem. That was the fundamental issue. Notice in chapter 9, verse 32. They didn't arrive at this law of righteousness. You could translate that a legal righteousness, an external form of righteousness that didn't change their heart, but allowed them to feel proud about themselves. They didn't even arrive at that. Why? Because they did not even pursue righteousness by faith, but as though it were entirely by works. The result... They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Uh, We know that that rock is Jesus Christ. He is the rock. He's the cornerstone upon which the entire structure of the righteousness of God is built. And because of Jewish pride, they weren't looking for Christ. They were looking for their own righteousness, and they tripped over Christ. Imagine, if I can put it in an analogy for you, the finish line for them was their own righteousness. Proving their own righteousness, their own worthiness before God. Their eyes are fixed on the finish line. It's fixed on that goal. And the law, in fact, we're told, could have led them to Christ. But they were fixed on their own righteousness. So when the law turned and began to point toward Christ, they missed the point and tripped over Christ. Have you ever missed the point? The real essence, the, real, the, the most important thing. I remember when I was first married, I frequently would miss the point. <laughs> I remember one conversation where my wife said, wow, Tristy said, you know, Chinese food sounds really good. And you go, yeah, it sure does. What are you going to cook tonight? <laughs> I missed the point. And, you know, we kind of had to negotiate that, you know, maritally. I, I don't, I do, I miss the point. I, that's just... Male, maybe, I guess, I, you know, but say it. I want to go to Chinese food. Great, I'd love to take you to Chinese food. Let's go have a romantic dinner at Chinese food. I got it. Be direct, because I missed the point. Well, sometimes, again, that's a failing of human nature. We miss the big, important idea. Everything was pointing toward Christ. Christ is the point. Do you remember when the disciples missed the point? about the resurrection. Jesus had been telling them and telling them and telling them if they'd got the point, they would have been sitting at the tomb and they would have seen Jesus come out, but they weren't anywhere close. And even after Jesus had risen, 
They didn't understand. They didn't believe. The women came back and said, no, 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 we saw him. We don't believe you. And there were two disciples walking along the road in mourning. They're walking along the road to Emmaus and Jesus comes up to them. And they don't get it. They don't see him. They've been with him for three years and they don't recognize him. Their eyes are blinded. And then Jesus begins to talk to them. And what does he do? He says, let me take you back to the law. Let me take you back to the prophets. And what's the point? I'm the point. It's all pointing to Jesus. Read with me chapter 10, verse 4. Paul says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is an incredibly important verse for your theology. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This word for end is a a very uh, flexible word. It means at least three things. It means Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Remember Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. I came to live righteously under the law and demonstrate that a man living in dependence upon the spirit can live righteously, not just the surface issues of the law, but the heart of the law. Not just don't commit adultery, but don't even lust. I can live that way. A man or a woman can live that way in dependence upon the spirit. The law can be fulfilled. I came to fulfill the prophecies about me that I would... I would make good on all the promises that God had made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I'm the fulfillment. Christ is the end in the sense that he is the fulfillment. Christ is also the goal. He is the point. He's the purpose for which these things were written. They're pointing toward Christ. Galatians chapter 3, it says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. And Paul has been arguing this so strongly in Romans, but also in Galatians, that it's always been justification by faith. That is, a person enters into a right relationship with God, just like Abraham did. He's the paradigm. Abraham didn't earn it through his good works. He didn't earn it because he kept the right of circumcision. He didn't earn it through the law. He received a gift through faith. And all of the law and all of the prophets is pointing toward Christ. He's the goal. He's the purpose. And then third, Christ is the termination. He's the ending point. If you think of a finish line, it's both a goal and it's an ending point. You're done once you're there. Read further in Galatians 3. It says, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The book of Hebrews is expositing this very point. Because Christ fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law, and he died for all the sins that were committed under that law, and he died for all sins of the future, he can remove that old covenant and set it aside because it is obsolete, and he can start a new covenant, which is not like the old covenant, which says, you shall do this and you shall not do that. Instead, he's going to establish a new covenant in which he writes his law upon your hearts, and empowers you by the Spirit to fulfill those righteous requirements of the law as you walk in dependence and faith. Christ is the termination. Christ is the end. Greatest human excuse. My own righteousness is good enough. What Jesus is doing is he is pointing out through his entire life and his entire ministry the distinction between religion and 
and a relationship that a person can have through him with God. Religion is all about what a person does for God, demonstrating his or her own righteousness, whether it is false forms of Christianity or Judaism or Islam or Mormonism. It's all about the person earning righteousness before God. I go to church. I got baptized. I sang in the choir. I give to the poor. I'm nice to the dogs in the neighborhood, whatever, right? I'm a good person. And compared to everybody else, I'm maybe not here, but I'm here and they're here. And my good, when compared with my bad, my good is so much heavier. It's so much better, relatively speaking. But the point of Christianity is we bring nothing. It's very humbling. It's very humbling. Because God is here and he is so far separated from us because of our sin that we cannot climb that mountain. All roads are not leading to the top of the mountain. We cannot get there. Our sin has created a separation between us and God, and it is only because God came down to us and brought us to him that we can be reconciled. That's the gospel, and it is so humbling that it is a stumbling block for many. And they say, no, I'd rather seek to establish my own righteousness. I was talking to an older gentleman recently, and he said, you know, I was in the church my entire life. But at one point I realized it wasn't about what I could give to God, but what God had done for me in Christ. Religion says, do, do, do. And Jesus says, it's done. It is finished. And that's the gospel. If you have never come to God and said, God, I thank you for what Christ did for me, not for what I bring to you, but just for what Christ did for me. Thank you for his death on the cross, removing the debt of my sins and guaranteeing me eternal life. If you've never said that to God, I encourage you this morning, just right where you're sitting, you don't even need to to close your eyes or bow your head, but cry out in your heart and say, God, rescue me from the debt of my sins because of Christ. Thank you. That's the first excuse that Paul debunks. It's an excuse that the Jews used. It's an excuse that people use today. Second one that he goes after is this. God's righteousness is too difficult. I want you to read with me now chapter 10, verse 5. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. What is Paul saying? What he's saying is, Salvation by works is hard. Don't say salvation by faith is hard. Salvation by works is hard. Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law, he has to live by that righteousness. The whole system hangs together. And if you break one point of the law, as James says, you've broken the entire law. Trying to be righteous through the law, that's what's hard, not righteousness by faith. Instead, he will say, Jesus is completely accessible to us. Chapter 10, verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Now he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend in the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. This is what Paul means. And he's making an excellent application of the law from Deuteronomy chapter 30. He's saying this. Don't say in your heart who will ascend to heaven. That is, uh, Christ is not accessible to us. And he's, he's saying, no, no, Christ already descended. That is the incarnation. God has already come down in human flesh. 
and revealed himself to you in human form. Don't say, we've got to go up there. We've got to go all the way to heaven and get the word of God for us so we can know truth. No, it's already come. It's been incarnated. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. You don't have to go down and get Christ. He's already been resurrected. He came down in the incarnation. He has been resurrected. Christ is here for you. And so now the word is implanted in your mouth. Just speak it. Just speak it. And what do you need to say? God, rescue me from my sins through Christ. Notice he goes on, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, salvation by faith is for all. Now, when Paul says, you must believe and call on the name of the Lord, he's not talking about two different things. Believing and calling on the name of the Lord. What he's doing, you'll notice in verse 8. It says, the word is in you, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. So he honors that quotation and starts with the mouth. Confession, which means to say the same thing as God. Okay? That's what confession is. Say the same thing. To call out is to be rescued. Okay? God, rescue me. It's an Old Testament image. God, rescue me. And who calls out? But the person who believes. Verse 14, how will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? So, he's not saying these are two distinct steps. We call on God to rescue us because we have believed the message that God has delivered. So what do we need to call out? First he says, Jesus is Lord. The word Lord can mean sir, mister. In the narrative, sometimes we'll say, people will say to Jesus, they'll call him Lord. What they're saying is sir, it's a term of respect, mister. Lord can also mean master. But in this context, what Lord means is God, okay? Paul frequently quotes Old Testament passages that are using the term Yahweh, and he inserts the Greek word Lord. It's Yahweh. What was the stumbling block for the Jew? Well, one of the primary ones was that Jesus was God. How can you forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. How can you say, I and the Father are one? They pick up stones. Why? To stone him for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They understood his claim. And so the stumbling block that the Jew had to get over was, Jesus is God. And because he is God and he sacrificed himself and died, that is a worthy sacrifice. God will accept that because it pays for all sins. It's God in human flesh. And you must believe that God raised him from the dead, accepting that payment. And then you must call out and say, God, there is no other rescue but the rescue that is in you. This is the gospel message. Jesus Christ was the God-man, fully God, fully man. God in human flesh. He walked upon the earth. He lived a real life. He ate, he drank, he slept. But he was God in human flesh, and the reason so was so that his payment would be adequate to cover all sins. It's not a, a lamb or a goat. It's not a bull. 
but it's an appropriate sacrifice. It is a human, a sacrifice for men and women because it's a human sacrifice. It's an adequate sacrifice because it's God in human flesh and he really died and he really rose from the dead. And there is salvation in no one else because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. So Paul says, call out and say, rescue me, God. Rescue me because only you can rescue me. Save me from the penalty of my sins and give me eternal life. And it's not too difficult, Paul says. The word is in you. It is in your heart. And no one will be disappointed if they call out whether they're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter. It's the law that's difficult. Salvation by faith through Jesus Christ is simple. So don't say it's too hard. Don't say we got to go up to heaven and get the word for us. We got to go down to the abyss and bring Christ up. No, he's right here. Just say yes. And maybe today God is saying to you, it is so simple right now and the word is right in front of you. It's in your mouth. Cry out. God save me. Third excuse that Paul debunks is this. No one told us about God's righteousness in Christ. Read with me chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent, just as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Glad tidings of good things. Notice Paul says there are, there are five steps chronologically and he reverses the order, but they go like this. Somebody must be sent. And when they're sent, then they must preach and they must speak the truth. Those who listen have to hear it and then they must believe. And having believed, they call out and say, rescue me, rescue me. And the Jew might say to himself, well, you know, uh, no one was sent to us. No one came and told us. So Paul quotes in verse 16. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, or the word from the Messiah, or about the Messiah. Uh, Where does that quote come from? Chapter 10, verse 16. Lord, who has believed our report? Quick, look in your margin. Okay, it's important, and it's hard to read your margin, so write it in big ink next to it, out out there, you know, a little, little brighter, a little bolder. It's Isaiah 53, verse 1. Lord, who has believed our report? What's Isaiah 53 about? Maybe the most important messianic passage in the entire Old Testament. It's about the suffering servant, the lamb that is silent before its shears, led before the slaughter, but giving his blood, his life, as a payment, the forgiveness of sins. God's Messiah will be crucified. Isaiah told you so. Isaiah told you so. You're not without witness about the Christ. I, uh, I had an opportunity to go in my neighborhood around my church in Dallas and, and share the gospel. And I, I ran into a, an older Jewish man on one occasion. So I kept going back to his house. And we built a relationship and we'd have conversations about all kinds of things, sometimes spiritual. At one point I said, do you have a Bible? He said, of course, I have a Bible. And so he got his Bible out and we flipped it open to Isaiah 53. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch. He's cruising along and he's reading the word, but he doesn't understand it. And what is he reading? He's reading Isaiah. He's reading the prophet Isaiah. Who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And Philip says, well, let me tell you, the prophet is talking about Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah crucified just a few days ago, but raised from the dead. You know, you know, 
And then Paul goes on in this section. He says, no, you, you do have witness. Jews, you do have witness. First, creation has revealed truth to all people. Verse 18. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice or their sound has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Quotation from Psalm chapter 8. Everybody has exposure to truth. Does creation reveal Jesus? Well, not explicitly, but it points toward him. A one true God. Outside of his creation, having made all things powerful, wise, intelligent, just. It's pointing toward Jesus. And all of scripture says when people respond to what they see, even in creation, it leads them to understand more and more and more truth. Jews, you had creation. Everyone has creation. The law predicted your current condition. Verse 19. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? Well, first, Moses, that is, the one who wrote the law. Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. That is, again, Deuteronomy chapter 32. Before Israel had actually even become a nation, they were still wandering in the wilderness, about to go into the promised land. And Moses said, A day will come when you will be moved to jealousy and anger because of Gentiles. So your current condition, I warned you about it even before you became a nation. Don't say we didn't know. The prophets also, verse 20, Isaiah the prophet, he is very bold and he says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. In other words, the prophets anticipated the Gentiles would be soft to the gospel and to Christ. And then finally, verse 21, but as for Israel, he says, all the day I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. In other words, this is the pattern of the Jewish response to truth. And I told you about it and I warned you about it and I chronicled it over and over and over again. So your current status, separated from God, you can't blame God for that. You knew. You knew. Now, how do, we, how do we package this and, and apply this? Let me give you just a couple thoughts. If we put Romans 9 alongside of Romans 10, what we have is the absolute sovereignty of God, the freedom of God, to do as he chooses, because he's God. In Romans chapter 10, we have the complete responsibility of mankind, men and women, To respond to the message that he has given them. And to respond in faith and trust. And if they don't, they won't experience eternal life. God is absolutely sovereign and free. And mankind is completely responsible. And Paul doesn't reconcile them for us. He doesn't put the two together. So, you know, I encourage you. Wrestle through this issue. This This is hard. Maybe the greatest struggle theologically in in the Bible. Uh, We call it an antinomy, which means you have two opposing principles or law that appear to be contradictory, but they're not. Given without reconciliation. Remember last week I gave you one illustration of this from Acts. Jesus delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, that is God's freedom, You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. That's responsibility. 
both in without reconciliation. Uh, you know, I encourage you to struggle it, but I, with it, but I encourage you also to affirm what Scripture affirms. Scripture affirms God is sovereign. God is free. Scripture also affirms that mankind is responsible, and no one will be in hell because they're non-elect. A person will be in hell because they choose to reject the revelation that God has given them. I want you to turn back with me to John chapter 3 and verse 16. You've probably read this passage a couple times. I will point out a couple more things that maybe you had not observed before. Verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And some will say that is the world of the elect. He only loved the world of the elect. But in John's theology, world is all that is against God. Okay? The world is all that is against God. God loved the world, even those who would abuse his grace and reject his grace. God loved the world. And so, Jesus is the satisfaction of the wrath of God, not for our sins only, who are in the club, but also for the sins of the whole world. God loved the world. So much that he gave his only son, his unique son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. Notice now. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Why is a person judged? Because they're not elect? No. But because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John goes on. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. That is the direction of humanity. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. And so the good that you see is what God had produced through him. Because God has rescued him from the rest of humanity. What do we do with that? You know, it's a tension uh, that's unreconciled. I want to give you one illustration or analogy. Uh, This was created by a man named R.B. Kuyper. He was a seminary prophet, Calvin Seminary. He said this, I liken God's freedom and his sovereignty and human responsibility to two ropes going through two holes in the ceiling and over a pulley above. If I wish to support myself by them, I must cling to them both. If I cling to only one and not the other, I go down. I read the many teachings of the Bible regarding God's election, predestination, his chosen, and so on. I read also the many teachings regarding whosoever will may come and urging people to exercise their responsibility as human beings. These seeming contradictions cannot be reconciled by the puny human mind. With childlike faith, I cling to both ropes, fully confident that in eternity... I will see that both strands of truth are, after all, of one piece. I have just one modification on that. I'm not sure that even when we're in eternity, we're going to get it. I don't know. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. But God is infinite. 
And even though we will possess eternal life, we will still be finite. We will still be limited. We will still be learning about God and worshiping him for new things that we discover for all of eternity because God is infinite. To me, that's one of the most exciting things about heaven is we will always be stretched. We will always be growing because our God is infinite. Will we understand everything about God and get all of our questions answered? I don't think so. I think there will be things that we can never understand because we're finite. I suspect, okay, we've just entered into opinion, pure opinion. I suspect that this is one of them, that we may not ever understand. And so I say, affirm what scripture affirms. Don't go beyond scripture. And don't go beyond scripture in trying to reconcile something that scripture doesn't attempt to reconcile for us. Instead, let me give you a couple of practical applications If you have believed, what is your excuse for not praying for those who aren't saved and for sharing your faith? Paul is the theologian that affirms the doctrine of election and God's sovereignty over and over and over again. He is also a passionate evangelist. Election never stopped him from sharing the gospel. Instead, as he has just shown in Romans 9 and 10, his heart breaks for the Jews and his prayer to God for them is for their salvation. He says, I'm not going to worry about election that is in the hands of God. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to share the gospel with them. I'm going to let them stone me and eventually kill me because I want them to know Christ so badly. If you have believed what is holding you up, from praying for and sharing your faith with those who don't know Jesus Christ. If you have yet to believe, what's holding you back? Maybe today is the day of salvation for you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would learn to come before you in absolute humility Because Jesus paid it all. Because he descended and became human flesh. And he was raised from the dead, never to die again. And we know this. And what he accomplished on our behalf removed that debt and consequently that separation. So we come to you through him, not because of what we have done or what we offer to you, but because of the work of Christ. And I pray, Father, that as we meditate upon this, it would, just, it would produce within us a deep, deep humility before you and a great compassion for those who don't know your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for this church that you would make us passionate and energetic evangelists, that we would leave in your hands your sovereignty and your election and trust you in your justice. And we would go to the nations and to our neighbors and share the truth of Jesus Christ. It is in his powerful, one true name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. Parents, thanks again for being with us this morning.